Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. Uh, it's a privilege to preach here at the chapel. Let me just say briefly uh, how much we appreciate the chapel. My family spent uh, the better part of a summer here about 70 years ago when I was on sabbatical. And uh, we've also joined you recently online. So I'm sure if I stood back where the camera is and looked at the back of everybody's heads, I would recognize many of you. Uh, but it's nice to actually see faces uh, this morning. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 93. It's page 589 in the Pew Bible. Uh, this is a little psalm. It's one of those where if you're reading through the psalms, you can easily just kind of skip right over it. Your eyes sort of glaze because it feels very psalmy. I don't know if that's an actual word or not. Um, it's five verses long, less than 50 words. Uh, but there's a lot packed in there, and so let's listen to God's Word together this morning. Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy, Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, this little psalm unpacks for us one of the most important concepts in the Bible, and that is the fact that God is king. Uh, at a time when the world can feel like it is spinning out of control, God's kingship is a message that we need to hear regularly. We need to sink our spiritual roots deep into it. And Psalm 93 has three stanzas, each of which shows us a different facet of God's kingship. In verses 1 and 2, God is the king of creation. He is a builder who establishes the earth so it cannot be toppled. In verses 3 and 4, God is the king over chaos. He is a warrior who is mightier than the wildest sea. And in verse 5, we'll see God is the king of his covenant people. He is a savior who draws near to his own. Again, I, I think that these truths about God's kingship are things that we need to hear now and all the time. The Lord reigns over the world that he made. The Lord reigns over all the things that we fear will overwhelm us. The Lord reigns over us. He's with us, and he will care for us so we can trust him. Let's just walk through this little psalm together this morning. Uh, so it opens in verse 1 with this great declaration, The Lord reigns, or the Lord is king. Uh, or possibly the Lord has become king. The Hebrew allows for this. A lot of scholars argue 
for it. It doesn't mean that there was a time when God wasn't king because the psalm actually says the opposite. God is from everlasting. It does mean that there are certain moments in history when God is enthroned anew as king, when his victories bring his kingdom and his kingship into greater and greater expression in the world. Uh, and we're immediately given this great metaphor that the Lord is robed in majesty. Now, I know in America we don't have monarchs and most modern political systems don't, but I think we all know what is being said here. Human kings wore distinctive clothing that indicated their royal status. So they were clothed in these uh, exquisite ornamental robes that were encrusted with jewels. And so the robe is an image of God's rule and reign. God's, role, sorry, God's robe is not made of expensive threads. It's not covered with jewels. God's robe is his majesty. It's his, excuse me, it's his dignity. He's clothed in grandeur and sovereign authority that inspires awe and reverence and worship. And we also read that God has put on strength as his belt, so your belt is what holds your robe in place, and the belt here that holds God's rule in place is his power, it is his strength, it is the fact that the world is established and will never be moved by that power. And so we see in verses 1 and 2 that creation celebrates God's kingship. The world stands because our king has told it to stand. And behind all that we've learned about our world through science and exploration stands this, God's uncontested reign over everything that he has made. Verse 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. I think metaphors are important, and there are a lot of metaphors in these uh, opening two verses. God is robed. We read that twice. God has a, a belt. He's got a throne. These are all metaphors, and I think that sometimes the, the, the theological among us and the practical among us want to kind of get rid of the metaphors. Just tell me what it means. Just sort of boil it down and reduce it to a proposition for me. But the whole point of the metaphor, the whole point of the way that it is written, is to make God, who is often difficult to imagine, more imaginable to us. Metaphors take theological truth out of the abstract so that we can experience it better. One person said that metaphor is a way of holding the most truth in the least amount of space. And so we lose something if we just translate it into a systematic proposition. It's one thing to say God is the creator who has sovereign power over his creation. It's another thing to say here with Psalm 93. He reigns and he's robed in majesty and strength is his belt and he sits 
on his throne. He is enveloped in beauty and dignity and power as our creator that demands praise and the esteem of his people. I think the church uh, in our time has been losing its grip on the majesty of God, or we could say on the God of majesty. Uh, We have become people who are worried and excited and animated and moved by anything and everything besides a great king who is adorned with majesty and sovereign rule and enveloped with strength. We're bombarded with so much news and information and media that we have become bored by or maybe oblivious to the fact that we have a majestic king. And these images in the Bible, like God being robed in majesty, they're they're meant to sort of grab us and shake us and wake us up and loosen our grip from other things so that we will be gripped by the majesty of the king. So God is the king of creation, which he created, which he stands, or which he makes stand by his almighty sovereign power, which might make us surprised to hear what comes next in the psalm, which is that the world is marked by chaos. In verse 3, we have this image of churning, raging, tumultuous waters. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Uh, the, flea, the, the flood, the sea waters, represent all that is uncontrolled, uncontrollable, frightening, and destructive in the world. You know, that's why Revelation says that in the new creation, there will no longer be any sea. It's not because God is against sailing or anything like that. It's that when God sets things right, evil and chaos, which are what the waters often represent, will be abolished. And I think it's important to note in verse 3 how the language builds and progresses kind of like floodwaters build and progress. So the floods have lifted up the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their roaring voice. The image I think is of the waves getting bigger and bigger and the waters getting higher and higher and the sound getting louder and louder until it roars and drowns out everything else. And as we read the psalm, if we're looking at it carefully, we, we should be left with this growing sense of being overwhelmed by the water. Uh, it's really only modern people who, when they think about the sea and the ocean, think about recreation. We should go for a cruise, you know, we should go jet ski or something like that. I think uh, if you want to get a good sense of the water, watch the movie A Perfect Storm. Uh, It doesn't matter how good of a sailor you are. The water wins. Uh, The ocean is powerful. It's an uncontrollable force. And that's why in the Hebrew Bible, the the sea and the floodwaters become another metaphor for disaster, social upheaval, and political chaos. 
In that sense, I think we could certainly say that the floodwaters have lifted up in our day, that the waves have been getting higher and higher, and they are roaring. The pandemic, political polarization, racial tensions, financial meltdowns, constitutional crises, the increase of anger and violence, to say nothing of wars and natural disasters and more. It's hard not to feel like we are living in verse 3. Mighty waters, mighty waters rising, mighty waters roaring. Forces beyond our control that feel like they are about to overwhelm us. And in verse 3, with the rising waters uh, of uh, of uh, all kinds of disasters are making us more and more anxious, then we need to go to verse 4 and see how it comes to our rescue. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. God is mightier than the roaring waters. Note what he's called. He's called the Lord on high. He's higher than the rising tide. He's never overwhelmed by the flood because no matter how high the waves get, God is higher. He is on high and girded with strength. And there are no challengers or rivals to his throne. Uh, again, I think the last few years have laid bare a flood of political and social and religious divisions in our world, in our country, sadly often in our churches. Uh, I don't know how or when or if we come back from all of that or what the future holds. What I do know is that in the face of all of it, there is one who is on high. God is mightier than the floodwaters that threaten to overwhelm us. He is mightier than the floods. He is stronger than the breakers of the sea. He is in charge. His rule is not uncertain. His rule is not insecure. His majesty and power crush everything that gives us fear and anxiety. And as king, God vanquishes the forces of chaos. In Genesis, he came into the formlessness and void, separated the churning waters and made dry land appear. In Jesus, he tread the path on the raging sea and spoke a word that calmed the violent waves. The disciples had never seen a storm, anything like it. They thought they would die. Jesus rebuked it, and it ceased. And remember the disciples' response? Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And I can't help but wonder, as people rooted in the Scriptures, if they were also thinking in their minds, Mightier than the floodwaters is the Lord Most High. 
Uh, there are events on every side of us that surge over us, overwhelm us, make us feel the loss of control. Jesus is in control. He reigns over the chaos. Well, this brings us to verse 5, this kind of surprising, maybe a little confusing turn. We move from the thunder of great waves to God's trustworthy decrees. The word here translated decrees in my ESV, it's translated statutes if you're reading the NIV. It's the word edut, edotecha, it means your testimonies. So a testimony can refer to the statutes of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments that were put in the Ark. More often, testimonies relate to all the religious service that God gave to Israel. Uh, it's a word that appears in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers to refer to the service of the tabernacle and the service of the ark by which God has come near to Israel, to his people. So testimony has to do with remembering and responding to the fact that God has drawn near. And here's the point, I think. Uh, it, the work of our king is not just his great might over creation. The work of our king is not just his power over the chaos and the roaring seas. The work of our king is also the way that he is in the midst of his people. He is transcendent and enthroned over creation, but he's also imminent and close, and he dwells with his people. Uh, and I think when you see something like this in the Psalms, I think when you see something like this in the Bible, you know, where God's transcendence and his imminence are put right next to each other, he, he's a high, mighty God, but he's also close to his people. What should you be thinking? You should be thinking that that's the incarnation. Uh, that's, that's what the incarnation is. The Lord of creation enters creation to dwell and tabernacle with us. The God who is robed in majesty, he takes off his robes and he puts on a servant's towel to wash the feet of his disciples. The one who sits above the chaos, enters into the chaos, descends into our chaotic world to be overwhelmed by the flood of human sin and divine judgment to save us. And I think what we're learning when we move from verses four, uh, verses 3 and 4 to verse 5 is that in a world of chaos where almost nothing can be relied upon, what can be trusted? What can be relied upon? The king and the testimonies of the king, the word of the king and the instruction of the king. The same power that made the world and conquers the chaos has given his word and his promises to his people and dwells in the midst of them. And if you're looking at your, uh, if you're looking at your Bible in verse 5, note, by the way, that God's testimonies are not just trustworthy. 
They are very trustworthy or exceedingly trustworthy. Sorry if I keep coming back to this. It's on my mind. We live in this media-saturated world. We're bombarded with news and stories uh, you know, that are increasingly full of falsehood or half-truths or whatever, misinformation. We're always trying to sort out what is true. How much more ought we to meditate on the things we know are absolutely true, are exceedingly true, God's trustworthy and faithful testimonies? Psalm 19, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Real wisdom comes from being discipled by God's trustworthy testimonies. More than the 24-hour news cycle, the Twitter cycle, the drama of the day, uh, and all these other things that we're tempted to doom scroll through. Well, the psalm ends with this curious comment that holiness befits your house, O Lord. Uh, This might feel like a little bit of a curveball. Where is this coming from in the context of the psalm? I think at the conclusion of the psalm, we're seeing that God's power over creation and his power over the chaos are really directed toward or in service of something greater, the holiness of his house. God doesn't just create for the sake of creating, and he doesn't just sort of calm the storm because it's there and he doesn't know what else to do with it. Everything God does, he does so that we can dwell with him in the holiness of his house. The God who is robed in majesty, the God who is mightier than the flood, is working through the tumult, and he is conforming us to his image so that we share in his holiness. And that's what his rule is doing right now. He is adorning us with beauty as we trust in him, so he can adorn his own house with beauty. And we participate in that as we trust in him and follow him and serve him and believe these true testimonies. Scripture is just filled with all of these true testimonies. God intends to bring us into his house and adorn it with beauty forever. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. That's a true testimony. We should meditate on that. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him to deliver his soul from death. That's a true testimony. We should meditate on that. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. That's a true testimony, exceedingly true, that we should meditate on. Let me put it another way as I try to wrap all of this up. What do we need to hear in light of all the awful news that we all hear all the time? The answer is not more awful news. We need to hear that God, over time and circumstance and history, reigns. He is king. He is on the throne. And yes, there will be things that make us wonder if God is really ruling. There will be moments where it feels like the most powerful thing in the world is the raging waters. But faith says, I believe that God and the testimonies of God 
are more powerful and more enduring. And when I look out at a world gone wrong, I am going to turn from fear and worry and anxiety and bitterness and depression and anger and control, and I'm going to trust that the Lord is King. I'm going to trust that Jesus is King. He didn't just still the storm. He submitted to the tide of God's judgment for us. In the cross, Jesus is not surprised and overtaken unwillingly by the chaos. The cross is the exercise of his kingly rule to save us and to conquer sin and death. And the New Testament in a number of places depicts Jesus' resurrection as his great kingly enthronement, his becoming king in a new and powerful way, so that the one who right now sits on the royal throne, robed in resurrection majesty, is the one who gave himself for you, so you can trust him in whatever's going on in the world. So let's root ourselves in this great truth that God is king. Let's live with confidence and holiness, knowing our God reigns. He's in control He's mightier than anything you are encountering. In the exercise of his might, you will never be disappointed. And so let's let the truth that God is king be our comfort, our peace, and our strength. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are our king. Not just the king of all that you have made, not just the king of over the chaos and the mighty waters, but the king of your people, the king of the people that you love and that you gave yourself for and that you are bringing into your holy house. Make these things to be for us truer, richer, more important than all the other things uh, that are put in front of our eyes and in our minds. We ask that we would rejoice in the fact that you are king. We pray all this in Christ's name. And for his sake, amen. And let's respond to Psalm 93 by singing together, Rejoice, the Lord is King. It's number 310 in your Trinity hymnal.